0: N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash W-T-F. Lock the <laughs> All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening, everybody? How is it going? I'm Mark Maron. This is my podcast, WTF. Uh, I hope you're well. I hope, you're, uh, I hope everything in your life is okay. I hope you're self-aware. I hope you're a caring person. I hope that uh, you're doing things, a few things anyways, to, to help. I know we all have our problems and we all drain the people around us occasionally and we all make mistakes, but I hope in general you're taking care of yourself and you do some nice things for other people. That's, that's my message today. I guess this is the kind of show we do occasionally where I've got something on my mind. The culture has something on its mind. There are things happening. They coincide. And we figure out a way to discuss them a little bit. I've had a problem for a while. And this is going back a year or two. Even more, maybe. Once comedians started complaining that they couldn't say things. That there was a, they, they were being stifled or they were being uh, told not to not to speak freely or they were afraid to say things or they were going to get in trouble if they said things. And just this uh, this this idea that there was censorship on a day-to-day basis in a comedy club or just that they were somehow being shut down, the comics. And it always sort of annoyed me. And then it kind of evolved into this uh, weird kind of anti-progressive anti-woke comedy that just plays into this whole attitude that you can't say anything anymore you can't you're going to get canceled you're going to get in trouble your career is going to be over you can't say anything anymore now look i've dealt with this shit i've been doing comedy a long time and i was not a good boy the reason i got into comedy was to be provocative the reason i got into comedy was to be challenging The reason I got into comedy was to speak truth or just to fucking start shit. That was the the legacy I wanted. That was the history of comedy I wanted to be part of. My heroes were people that said the dark stuff, that said the angry stuff, that said the stuff that made people uncomfortable. That was what I wanted to do. Push the envelope, man. Be on the edge. Be edgy. And I and I was and I arguably it's one of the reasons I I probably didn't make it until I evolved somewhat until I grew the fuck up until I understood more of where I was coming from and who I was and what my responsibilities were as a comic and as a human among other humans. I used to do bits dubious bits. They're out there. Some of them are some of them are recorded. Some of them were never recorded. And I don't disown any of that stuff. I listen to a lot of that stuff now. And it's it's certainly me, but it's an angrier me. It's a less sophisticated me. It's a more insensitive me. It was a a tone and a and a part of me that was shallow emotionally. But look, man, I did the jokes. I used the retarded word. I explored the word retard. I did a lot of work around that. And I and I I knew it was hot and I knew there was a lot of juice to it. I didn't quite understand why at that time, why we couldn't still use the word. And I tried to create a whole thesis about that word, sort of making an argument that we should be able to use it in the way that we used to use it. And I knew that it was challenging and I knew it made people uncomfortable. I didn't quite know why until I got a letter from a woman who, who had a mentally disabled child. Who said it's not about? It's not the the concern is is more about the insensitivity to to someone like her. I mean that that child might not quite grasp what's happening. Many of them can when you use that word. But she said it's it's not the, it's not how we see them. It's not the word that we use because they're they're human beings. The connotations of that word and how it's used as a slang as a representative of something terrible, something stupid, something almost inhuman has a profound effect on the people that love mentally challenged people, let alone the mentally challenged people. And for some reason, I understood that. How many people in an audience are you going to speak to that, you know, your idea in your head being a selfish little fuck, you're like, they're not in here. They don't come to the shows, but their brothers do, their sisters do, their parents do, their uncles, their cousins. It hurts them. And that landed And I stopped saying the word and I realized it was not defensible, even if it was an exciting bit to do, because there's plenty of people that are like, fuck, yeah, we should be able to say retarded. What kind of world can you say retarded in this one, this world, the world of people among people? I've used the word tranny. I used to use the word tranny. I used the phrase chick with a dick that that material is out there. I used to do a bit about a man wanting to become a woman and not and stopping in the middle and being half and half. And I said it's like this: they want to make themselves a mythological creature. And I thought that was sort of flattering and exciting and poetic. Until someone said, "Look, I'm that person," and it's it's demeaning. This is a hard struggle that I'm living with in this body, and that doesn't help. It's 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 diminishing. And I still thought like, but I thought it was beautiful. It's not. So I stopped. I realized this this is condescending. It's diminishing. And it hurts people. In the world of people. We're people among people. Just trying. There's been other stuff too. I've, I've used the word cunt. I've used the word, I mean, it, pussy. I've used it. Occasionally I still use that one. But I, I look. The point is at some point I had to ask myself, why? Why do I do these? Why, why, why is this where the juice is? The feeling of saying something that is going to offend or be challenging is, is a buzz. It's like it jacks you up. It's exciting. And then you break it down. It's exciting to be rallied around and make people laugh at something that's incorrect, wrong, impolite, hurtful. It frees it up and it enables people. Who are probably might be polite or respectful and and might not use those words to sort of, you know, kind of get a little juice, get a little relief, get a little laugh, you know, be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Except for the one person that's crying or the one person or two people that their brothers mentally disabled or the one person that can't live in their body anymore or the five people it doesn't matter how many. Why do it? For me, it was to provoke I wanted to be provocative. I wanted to provoke. Provoke what? I didn't think it through. I just knew it made people uncomfortable. And it got those horrible dark laughs. And was probably misunderstood by many. And seen as a, a portal to permission. To feel contempt. For the vulnerable. So I stopped doing that stuff because I began to understand the nature of of it. My need or desire to provoke was compulsive. It was a power trip. It was a buzz. I wasn't revealing hypocrisy. I wasn't speaking truth to power. But sadly, all this fight against wokeness, this anti-woke comedy, my big problem now is it drives a wedge in the cultural dialogue and in the comedy community. It's got a, uh, a lot of it has sort of a rallying cry to it. A lot of it is very easily turned out by the right-wing propagandists. This serves the movement towards an anti-democratic fascistic system that is fighting to conquer here. And I don't know if these comics know that or if they care, but what they're doing is fundamentally pissing on the less fortunate, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the minorities. Free speech is an American right, sure. And you can say whatever the fuck you want. You can. No one's ever said you can't. You just have to shoulder what comes back at you. You have to shoulder the responsibility of what you reap after you've sown your garbage. But this idea that you can't say anything anymore, this victim position, this grievance about this impediment... To your free speech is nothing new. I saw a bunch of tweets running by my feed. I'll read them to you. Or what they were. There was an interview with comedian George Goebel in 1957. Quote, now don't get me wrong. I think it's wonderful to live in a country where big, powerful networks have to pay attention to the little guy's likes and dislikes. That's enlightened democracy. But a TV comic nowadays needs the soul of a seismograph to know where the next rumble of public wrath is coming from. We have to be verbal tightrope walkers. 1957, 64 years ago, worried that telling jokes was getting too risky. Arthur Godfrey hammered it home pretty explicitly in 1962. Quote, now you can't kid anyone anymore. Negro and Italian jokes are out. It's sad, unquote. Go back 14 years earlier. Red Skelton was saying the same thing in 1948, quote, people worry about everything these days. I'd like to be able to say something like he's so Scotch, he won't chew bubble gum because he can't stand losing the bubbles when they pop. But if I did, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Scotsman would be on my neck, unquote. Scotsman. Here's a syndicated article from 1958 with the headline, quote, Danny Thomas believes audiences are too thin skinned. People who complain about dialect bits cause more bigotry than they prevent. After all, everybody in this country belongs to some kind of minority group, unquote. Hey, look, we're all minorities of some kind, right, people? We can make fun of whoever we want. We're all minorities here. And if you think it's a modern concept to push back on this type of thinking, check out this editorial from Variety in 1945 titled Thoughtless Funny Men. I quote again. Comedians persist in being among the worst offenders against racial minorities. This is not because comedians are biased, but because so many are thoughtless of consequences. Anything for a giggle, unquote. 1945. So where did these tweets come from? Where Where did I get all this information? I didn't do this research. The, all these headlines and articles and editorials. I'll tell you where came from Cliff Nesterov. Cliff is a comedy historian. He's been called the Human Encyclopedia of Comedy. He's been on this show three times before because I enjoy talking about comedy with him. He's been curating those historical accounts on his Twitter feed at Classic Showbiz for the past month or so. Cliff is the author of The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. And his latest book is We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, The Unheralded Story of Native Americans and Comedy. And he's here today to address the history of the grievance of not being able to say what we want to say when we want to say it because of all these sensitive people who are so easily triggered. Come on, can't they take a joke? The history of that. you get your podcasts. I was
1: so uh, convinced that the pandemic the comedy wouldn't come back because really? it was because it was so popular before the pandemic that I was like, oh, this will be the bottom out is when it the pandemic and then people won't come. and it seems to be the opposite. Like it's back in full force because people
0: are hungry to yeah, Also, it's a it's a very easy and accessible, you know, live event. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that expensive if you're going to a club. I mean, you know, to go to the fucking comedy store, yeah. that's a cheap night out, dude. And it's real deal shit. It's always a good time. Yeah. And it's live. And and it's like everybody has a good time there. All the crowd has a good time. All three shows. It's
1: just like, isn't it amazing when it had that down period like in the early 2000s? It almost yeah. looked like
0: it was going to end. Well, yeah, it's been through that a couple of times. Yeah. It's
1: just, it's amazing. Again, that's sort of the theme of, of this thing the, the cyclical nature of comedy.
0: That well, that, well, that was what was interesting to me about seeing your tweets. Uh, my producer, Brendan, brought it to my attention that you were kind of, you know, reeling off this stuff. Is that, you know, in light of what is happening, you know, my criticism has been all along that, uh, you know, no one's telling you you can't say anything. Uh, you know, but if you do say something and there are repercussions, you'll be have to be able to shoulder that. But, But more than that. It's that I don't know whether these I don't know if they're comics or activists or this whole idea of like, you know, anti-woke comedy or the fight for freedom of speech that, you know, what a lot of this material, a lot of these comics are, are, are what's happening is they're being turned out by right right wing propaganda that whether they're willingly doing that, they fit so snugly into the message of, of what is the current, you know, right wing sort of bordering on fascistic momentum in the country, that it's it's disconcerting. And I don't know that a lot of them know that, and I don't think the fight is real, whatever they're fighting.
1: Yeah. In the 70s, the only real provocateur was like a Andy Kaufman or right. a Tony Clifton, where he didn't care if he got laughs. The point was a reaction, a provoking. And now there seems to be a genre of provocateurs where it's like, the purpose is to provoke then people do get provoked and then they're aghast that you would be provoked by their provocation. And I find that bizarre. I also don't understand the motivation of why you would get into comedy for reasons other than to get laughs.
0: Well, I I don't know what's happened, but I think it is the power of political propaganda whether they know it or not that, that what that there is you now have this huge swath of the comedy landscape that they don't have to answer to regular show business they've all built their worlds mm-hmm. so it's like there there really is this the, not only does cancel culture not really exist but there are guys out there doing what you would normally be what they think canceled for, that they are unaffected by any repercussions because they have their audience. You know, like someone like Joey Diaz, who I like, you know, when he gets like a pushback for anything, he's like, go fuck yourself. You know, my people aren't, they don't give a shit. What are you going to do? Yeah, and that's true. Like, you can say what you want. But I think what was interesting about what you were saying, just culturally, like, you know, what is happening now is not unlike other things in the past other other events of this type of panic but what's different now is the the way that information is disseminated and also the tribalization of the comedy community and also the right-wing community so the underside of this country has always been racist and Mm -hmm. kind of you know shitty and Mm -hmm. wrong-minded right so you know when you know new immigrants and new minorities pushed back, they buckled ultimately and the the language evolves.
1: Well, social media obviously is the big factor that didn't exist before. That's obvious. We all know that. But the concerns are always the same. Whenever there's a new wave of minorities uh, asserting their power, usually it's a matter of immigration, but also indigenous people, the formerly enslaved. Whenever a new group is starting to assert themselves and stand up for themselves, there's this great pushback. And so when you look at the roots of stand-up comedy, it's generally uh, the post-Civil War period. That's when vaudeville comes up, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Mm-hmm. What's happening at the same time, uh, you know, the formerly enslaved are now freedmen. Uh, indigenous people are being rounded up and put on reservations. There's a new wave of Italian immigration, Irish immigration, and Jewish immigration. And they're all being demonized the irish you know all the stereotypes that are associated with these groups they start then essentially in the united states uh they're untrustworthy they're criminals you know they're they're you know all the things that are used to demonize each new wave of immigrants so this, is today. Ha-
0: this is happening post civil war i
1: mean you could go back even further if you wanted to blackface minstrelry becomes yeah. popular In 1830. Mm. The phrase Jim Crow, as we know, is a reference to segregation, but that name was the name of a comedian. The first popular blackface comedian, his character was Jim Crow. Mm. And he used all the familiar stereotypes of watermelon and chicken, and it created the blackface minstrel craze. That was the first showbiz craze in America in the 1830s and 1840s. There was a blackface comedy team called Mr. Tams and Mr. Bones. They had a routine. It was like a two-man Abbott and Costello thing. White guys. Yeah, doing blackface. Hey, Mr. Tams. What's that, Mr. Bones? Do you know why the chicken crossed the road? Why, no, I don't. Why did the chicken cross the road? To get to the other side. That riddle that we tell our children is one of the original blackface routines. That's hmm. why chicken is referenced in it. Right. Frederick Douglass, the famous abolitionist, in the year 1848 became a perhaps the first major celebrity to condemn blackface. He referred to blackface comedians as the filthy scum of white society in the year 1848 before the Civil War. So there's people objecting to blackface comedians before the Civil War. After the Civil War, Reconstruction is occurring and there's this pushback against Reconstruction. Black people are marginalized. Newly arrived immigrants are marginalized. Irish, Italian, and Jewish. In those days, to be an actor was considered very disreputable. Show business was disreputable. If you were a member of bourgeois society, it was shameful if your daughter dated an actor. So yeah. marginalized people-
0: Well, no, they're not wrong.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> marginalized people from other who are restricted from yeah. other places, law, medicine, whatever, found a home in show business. At the same time, That's where the stereotypes are flourishing, anti-Irish, anti-Italian, anti-Jewish stereotypes. It was usually the children of these immigrants who became the voices, the activists who said, cut this shit out, quit insulting me, quit insulting our parents. This stuff is harmful. It's wrong.
0: It's not true was, was was part of their argument is that we're Americans Well, part of the argument was that you're insulting me right I get that but was there the the sense of like because the you know there there is I don't I wonder when that started to happen where the immigrants started to own their citizenship in a way well it was related that... it was related to other social movements so like the Molly Maguires were very
1: militant in uh, uh, labor activism yeah. and radical like would detonate bombs. Um, there was an organization called the Clan Nagale who were protesting comedians and show business. They weren't as violent as the Molly Maguires or the IRA, but they sort of had a similar conceit. And they would petition vaudeville theaters where comedians were doing Irish stereotypes. And they would say, please tell your performers this is not acceptable. Cut out the Irish stereotypes. And the vaudeville theater would be like, lighten up, get a sense of humor. We're not changing anything. And so this organization its like a Gaelic phrase, clan the Gael. Um, They would storm the theaters, they would stink bomb the theaters, they would pelt comedians with rotten eggs. So that old cliche of pelting a performer with rotten eggs, it comes from uh, oppressed immigrant groups objecting to comedians insulting
0: them. And and the reason why is because it was diminishing their reputations, their communities, their ability to live a free life in a way that if you're locked into these stereotypes and everyone makes these assumptions about you, it it stifles your voice.
1: When you dehumanize people, it justifies any kind of behavior towards them. You can put people in jail. You can kill them. They're less than human.
0: And stereotyping is a form of dehumanizing.
1: Exactly. And so this happened through every wave of immigration. The next wave... Italian immigrants started to object to sort of the organ grinder stereotype on the stage. Same thing, threatening vaudeville theaters. And I posted a clipping I found, an editorial written in a Kansas newspaper from 1903. And the editorial writer said, I can't believe, I'm, in, I'm paraphrasing, I can't believe these vaudeville theaters would buckle to this Clan Niguel Irish Protest! What's next if we buckle to to these Irish protesters? What's going to stop African Americans from objecting to blackface? Where does it stop? Mm. Uh, and in the article, and I quote: the guy says, "If you if we buckle to the Klan, Nagel, if we buckle to African Americans, say goodbye to comedy." Yes, the year nineteen o three. Wow, comedy is forecasted as soon to die because we're placating the objections of uh, marginalized
0: and, groups. And 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 the the interesting thing is the only thing that that brought life to stand up in its evolution was a you know a proactive and embracing of of these different voices. Exactly. And we
1: still have that legacy today. The yeah. roots of American stand up comedy are Jewish American African-American, and to a slightly lesser extent, Italian and Irish-American, George Carlin's Irish-American, Billy Tomlin's Irish-American, Richard Pryor's African-American. The list of Jewish-Americans is huge, right? So that legacy remains with us today. And it was established in those years, the 1870s, the 1880s, the 1890s, an extremely violent period in American history where uh, people involved in labor strikes are literally being shot, killed, you know. Um, uh, The Ku Klux Klan is on the rise at that same time. And so these sort of prejudices were seen as a justification for the behavior of the Ku Klux Klan and whatnot. So this went on and on and on. And some vaudeville theaters took it upon
0: themselves. So even then, they, they were seen as justifications for the yeah. behavior or or in, in the very least, uh, you know, ignorant of the, uh, you know, repercussions of enabling these things.
1: It was part of a greater dehumanization process, mm. you know, and... In 1912, Hammerstein's Theater, which was a major vaudeville flagship, Mm. banned Jewish stereotypes from the stage preemptively. They thought, oh, we're going to get, that's going to be the next wave. So we'll ban Jewish dialect. You know, fake noses was a thing back then.
0: Unless the Jew was stereotyping himself.
1: Well, even, even that was oh. controversial. Oh, yeah. Way back in the 50s, Myron Cohen, who used to always do sort of Yiddish Jewish thing, right? stuff on The Ed Sullivan yeah. Show, there were organizations of rabbis that organized and said, this is defamatory because it did play sometimes anti-Semites like that type of comedy. Sure. So it was like, what message are you sending? We could laugh about this amongst ourselves. You put it on The Ed Sullivan Show and then suddenly it gives license to anti-Semites. It's sort of like a similar debate in hip hop about the N-word. It's like, what example yeah, does tricky, it give though. white it's, it's,
0: kids? That's you, a little trickier though, isn't it? Because there, you know, for me, just from personally, I know that when there is a rise in anti-Semitism, I'm going to get Jewier (laughs) on stage. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because I think it's time to to embrace the voice. Yeah to show your strength. Yeah. Like, I think that, you know, interesting that there was pushback by rabbis because at that time, you know, the idea was how do we get, you know, Jews to pass? Mm-hmm. How do we create a Jewish middle class? Right. How do we fit into the fabric of this? That right. was back when they, they still couldn't get into country clubs or or, or Ivy League colleges. Right. Well, right?
1: There, there was a very similar conceit with black performers who did blackface that was a thing it's almost like inconceivable today but it was so common in show business to do blackface black performers just adapted the shtick of blackface they would exaggerate the mouth put on the white gloves speak in dialect it was a way to sort of assimilate into the showbiz culture um, but those internal debates are always going on and always did go on and in 1922 uh the schubert vaudeville chain another major vaudeville chain banned blackface and it looked in the early 20s like blackface would be gone from show business and then silent movies picked it up and started uh advertising the same stereotypes that had been phased out Mm. in vaudeville Mm. and so it had a second wave and there's all these waves different periods of time especially when racism fascism, lynching, when those things are on the rise, that's when there's a greater pushback against the stereotypes in show business. Always, Hmm. always. So in the post-war period, after World War II, that's when blackface is basically eliminated from film. And television was just starting up. And the idea was all these black soldiers had sacrificed overseas fighting fascism, uh, supposedly in the name of democracy. They come back and... Black men in uniform are being lynched at an incredible rate all throughout the South. you know it was considered how dare you act like you're a hero? you're not a hero? Um, there was all kinds of lynchings 1946, 47, 48, 49. Wow. So out of respect, the movies do not use blackface after
0: around 1945. very few exceptions. It's, what we're dealing with now and what I, what I find. Historically interesting, you know, obviously this is and this is like, you know, ominous and horrible and, you know, it's, it's very specific. But once you get into, uh, you know, television and once you, you you start talking about I saw some of the clips you posted about you know, these these popular acts, you know, who have national followings, who, uh, you know, feel threatened in the 50s and 60s by, you know, uh, minority pushback against stereotypes, against, uh, you know, characterizations, against, you know, vocalizations, all different, you know, elements of comedy. And they they literally feel like entitled to those things because it's part of their act and that you know the blame the onus is on the people that can't take a joke and and these are destructive sort of stereotypes now again i want to make it clear because look i i think you should say whatever you want do whatever the fuck you want to you can you just know that you know depending what it is you're going to be surrounded with people like-minded people and if that's your tribe enjoy yeah but but the truth is is that if we want to move forward because i believe that you know once you get into real standup you know once you get into the lennies and the and the morts and the uh, Shelleys, and, and is that you know, you have an evolution of cultural language mm-hmm. that, that that it's always, you know, to me, it's like, you know, there was a time you can't say chink anymore. You can't say Chinaman. You can't say yellow man. You can't say, you know, how, why is it so difficult to let go of tranny and all these you know, language evolves. Mm-hmm. Respect is afforded to those that, that fought for it and deserve it. And comedy moves on, figure it out. Mm-hmm. But what do you make of. These earlier iterations of this defense of uh, hurtful comedy—you know—in order, you know, to maintain an act, because it seems to me to be selfish, childish, and just really about the money and not wanting to change.
1: Well, very rarely, uh, when a comedian becomes defensive in the wake of something like that, very rarely does the comedian belong to the the group that's objecting yeah you know so their perspective is not the same as as the uh,
0: subjugated group or the group that takes offense or what have you and 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 they and oddly you know their ability to joke about it does not imply empathy like you know because it can present itself like that Mm -hmm. like you know i get it but they don't get it Mm -hmm. they don't they they, because the empathy required to understand what it would feel like to actually be an oppressed group, as opposed to just go da da fa 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 fa, you know, is like different. I mean, it is
1: natural to be defensive when somebody attacks you, no matter who you are. Okay. You're gonna be, you're gonna be automatically sort of reflexive without thinking of why this person- What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so I have an example in my new book about Will Rogers. Yeah. Everybody knows the name Will Rogers, and if they know anything about him, it's this catchphrase, never met a man I didn't like. And right. Museums and and hospitals named after Will Rogers. In 1934, at the height of his fame, he was hosting a show called The Shell Chateau, which yeah. was sponsored by Shell Gasoline, yeah. and he was introducing a song, and he used the N-word. He said, that's a real N-word. He didn't say N-word, hyphen mm-hmm. but he said- that's a real N-word spiritual. Yeah, and he said it three more times. Yeah, this created what year? 1934. Uh-huh. As soon as it happened, the switchboard lit up. Even in 1934, you could not say the N-word yeah. on national radio. Right. You could not. It was already a known taboo. Yeah. So he says the N-word three times, and Shell Oil is suddenly subjected to a mass boycott by uh, black organizations that organized and Will Rogers' movies. He was a Fox movie star at the time, Uh just like Shirley Temple. His movies were pulled from theaters in Harlem in protest. And Shell Oil, the sponsor, said, okay, Will Rogers, you've got to go back on the air this Sunday and apologize. Say you misspoke. You didn't mean any offense when you said the N-word. Will Rogers goes back on the air does not apologize. He goes, you people who are jumping on me are too quick to attack. I meant no ill will when I use the N-word and I'm not a racist. I can't be a racist because I was raised by darkies. <laughs> Shell Oil goes, what are you doing? Yeah. No. Yeah. You're doing that. You're making things much worse. And so yeah. the boycott was expanded to boycott all sh- Shell Oil gasoline products and to pull all Fox films from theaters. But... This was only picked up by the black press, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender. Mm. The black press talked about it, and there were all these editorials for a month. The white press didn't touch it. And so- Shell Oil was able to let this pass without doing anything, and Will Rogers didn't apologize any further, and he died in a horrific plane crash a year later, and everybody forgot about it. But in those days, when African Americans had so little power in the body politic, their concerns were easily ignored. That's not the case anymore. So that's sort of- With anybody. Yeah. So this is sort of like a big shift where there's a larger voice now for oppressed people, for marginalized people. whereas. Previously, it was easy to ignore them, but but
0: what you're basically exploring with all these examples that people can find on your Twitter feed, classic showbiz at classic showbiz, is that you know exactly what is happening now was not unusual you're talking about 1934 where there was a grassroots attempt to get to boycott shell oil until you know somebody paid uh, or, or apologized for being disrespectful yeah. and that individual could not see his disrespect yeah. he did not understand you know what what was disrespectful because he had become accustomed or used to or grew up with these racial exactly. racially provocative, terms that you know may not have meant anything to him but all all it, all he had to do was you know understand engage in just even a, a modicum of empathy to real to be respectful of 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 a group of people you know trying to assimilate and have their place in the world mm-hmm. yeah th- i mean that seems to be that seems to be ultimately the legacy of this thing is that you know language evolves and, and people, you know, if you fight this fight, will have their place in the world. That's all seems what people want, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: But the corporate element is sort of interesting, too, that that was always the way it is, because this is where it's never about the constitutional idea or, or guarantee of free speech. That's not what this is about. Free speech is different than a business saying, you know, we're not going to support this. Well, there's only two, in my opinion, only real really two forces
1: that can censor, corporations and the government. Mm -hmm. Government has the law, corporations have the the channels of communication. Yeah, Yeah. A college student can't pay their tuition, let alone censor you. They can object to you, but people protesting Netflix is not censorship. I'm amazed how blind people are to the fact that Dave Chappelle is practicing free speech, sure. and people protesting Netflix are practicing free speech. Right. They are not the opposite. Right. You know, they're practicing the same technique. But there's this conceit right now that protest is censorship. Today, Martin Luther King would be cancel culture. It's not the case. Protest is free speech. It's not yeah, censorship. But,
0: yeah, but see, the thing is, is that yeah, that's willful ignorance or or totally, you know, right wing propaganda. And it's, having,
1: and it's having an effect sure people need to understand you have more free speech today in comedy and everywhere than ever before in the 20th century comedians frequently were arrested and sentenced to jail for the content of their act i challenge anybody to present to me an example i'm happy to be wrong if i'm wrong Of a comedian in the last 15 years who was arrested for the content of their act. Mae West in 1927 talked about sex on the stage. She was sentenced to 10 days on a prison work gang for doing comedy. A guy named Marty Wayne in Philadelphia, 1946, very obscure comedian, convicted of obscenity. We don't know what he said. Mm. It was probably nothing particularly crazy by today's standards. Sentenced to six months in jail for doing stand-up. Lenny Bruce... Frequently arrested, even after the obscenity laws were largely overturned by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional in the late 60s, early 70s. George Carlin arrested in 1972, Milwaukee Summerfest. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you couldn't do Blazing Saddles today. Blazing Saddles, co-written by Richard Pryor, comes out in 1974, the same year August 74, Richard Pryor is arrested in Richmond, Virginia, charged with disorderly conduct for using the same words in his act that you can go see in a movie theater in Blazing Saddles. That's not that long ago, and I feel like it's an insult and disrespectful to the comedians who came before and literally sacrificed their freedom for our freedom to speak freely today to say that you can't say anything anymore bullshit you can say whatever you want and it's because these other comedians literally went to jail
0: right and what it's really about is they want to be able to say you there was there one of the reasons why there was uh, you know laws and weirdness and puritan ideas is that there is a risk to speaking your mind mm-hmm. you can do it but you have to be willing to shoulder the the whatever comes yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's a dangerous game in some respects, but if you, you know, like you're saying, the courage to speak your mind about whatever is is not any different than the courage to protest, you mm-hmm. know, the 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 repercussions of that.
1: I I don't see why any comedian would change their approach in the sense that All stand-up is a risk. When you try out new material, it might work, it might not work. It doesn't have to be anything that's risky. You just don't know for sure. You follow your comic instincts and you assume that people will agree that this is funny. And if they don't, you adjust your act. You try and build it. Hopefully it becomes funny. If it doesn't, you throw it out. That's how you build an act. That's how you've always built an act. That's not different now. And I kind of feel like it's the same thing. If you're a comedian who's too afraid to speak... Then why are you doing stand
0: But But outside of that, there is a trend now. There is a movement of people, you know, some comics, some good comics, some not so good comics, that feel like this provocative, mm-hmm. anti woke, anti progressive, mm-hmm. you know, fuck everybody disposition is really the cutting edge of comedy. Where it's 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 becoming hack, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, it's it really is about the political agenda now. Because everything you're saying implies to me that As we established earlier, there is no, you know, lack of freedom of speech. If anything, you can say more than you ever could before. There is no one censoring anybody. There's people reacting and there may be corporate repercussions, you know, if protests happen. But that all revolves around this freedom of speech of 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 activism, of protest in response to whatever anybody says, moving through, you know, uh, boycotts and whatever that that's always happened. But but the point is, is that there is now a trend, both politically, to stifle the speech of marginalized people to enforce and maintain the sort of um, white entitled paradigm of power and that, you know, it is antithetical to cultural progress, but it's on purpose. So if those comics who are doing it are just doing it for the juice or for the attention or for they think they're really doing something comedically. I, I think the, the real problem now is that they may not realize that they're being used mm-hmm. for a political movement and to, to enforce a type of politics that is anti-democratic. It's ridiculous.
1: The reality is, though, throughout history, it's not even a left-right thing. Right. You know, sometimes a right-wing force might be in favor of censorship. They'll always deny it, but they'll be in favor of censorship. Vice versa. Maybe left wings in favor of censorship. Always deny it. People kind of want to suppress whatever they disagree with. It's not it doesn't have to be a political thing. This tug of war. My point is it's not yes. even a political point. Yeah. Is that this tug of war has been going on for the duration of comedy. There's always a battle between free speech and censorship. There's always a struggle between oppressed groups and the oppressor and they're always jockeying for power and it's cyclical and it goes back and forth. All the time, Red Skelton in 1948 complained, you can't joke about anything anymore without people getting upset. Danny Thomas complained in 1958, you can't joke anymore without people getting upset. 1968, again and again and again and again, and it keeps happening. And it's not going to conclude, but this sort of intensified culture, this propaganda chamber that we're trapped in with social media, with cable news, that is more heightened than ever before. But when you instill fear in people, you can get them to believe any old bullshit. It's how we get into wars. And so this is sort of like a war, but it's a cultural war as opposed to let's invade Iraq war. But it's still a disinformation campaign. It's still something of a conspiracy theory. The idea that you can't say anything anymore. Ooh, they're coming for you. Ooh, they're going to cancel you. No, they're not. The only place in comedy where I can see... Firm censorship consistently is on network television, ABC, CBS, NBC. Nobody complains about it. You get booked on The the Tonight Show and Michael Cox says, you can't say cunt. You can't say cocksucker. Every comedian goes, "Okay, I'll take him out because you want to do The Tonight Show. Nobody goes, ah, you're canceling me, PC police. You know, when there is censorship in front of their noses, they seem oblivious to it.
0: But that's still that's corporate censorship. And and like, you know, that, that the pushback on that is what? you know yeah
1: yeah. well there's no pushback on it i mean it's a combination of corporate censorship and the fcc which is government censorship so those are your forces of censorship are the government and corporations not individuals or college students or minorities
0: but the bottom line is even with all this push and pull for right or left or for whatever reason over the over the 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 arc of history of entertainment you know where we sit now is you know really in the most diverse population ever Mm -hmm. with the ability to say whatever the hell you want with the possibility of everyone to have their own voice in the mix to some degree yeah. so so progress yeah. cultural progress and progressive ideas and diversity won out so what we're seeing now is a pushback against the idea of de- democracy and diversity you know in in the sense that like what do they want to return to what is the freedom of being able to pinpoint and push buttons of marginalized groups, in in the name of what? Yeah, I don't understand the
1: motivation of needing to provoke rather than to make laugh. And anybody can provoke. You don't have to be funny to provoke, but you kind of have to be funny to succeed at stand-up, hopefully. This is the weird thing, you know, the whole idea that comedians are philosophers or this or that. (laughs) Most people aren't funny on planet Earth. If you're born with that natural inclination to make people laugh, that is like a superhero skill. And in my opinion, that's good enough. Mitch Hedberg isn't a shitty comedian because he's not trying to provoke you. Rodney, you know, he's not a bad comedian because he's not grinding his stand-up act to a halt to get super serious for 15 minutes. You know, like comedy, the fact that you can make people laugh should be... The most important thing. The fact that you can provoke or make people think, that's fine, but also anybody who isn't funny can also do that. Yeah,
0: but the, but the weird thing is is that these guys who were really the ones who did that, you know, that this has become the new paradigm for this, you know, certain contingent genre yeah. of, 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 of quote unquote comedy fans, which I argue uh, they're looking for leaders. Mm. But the type of comics that we were talking about that were prov- provocative were the minority. There was always maybe two or three of them that Mm -hmm. had any effect or impact at any given point in time Mm -hmm. during the history of comedy. Mm -hmm. The rest of them were the clowns and the buffoons and the the one liner guys and the the guys who had shtick. But the guys that, you know, set out to provoke and be the philosophers,
1: you can count them on two hands. The irony is that the provocateur today would not be allowed to provoke if not for those minorities paving the way. Mm-hmm. you know and Lenny Bruce attacking religion you could get in big trouble for attacking the white house the president religion talking about sex you couldn't talk about masturbation there were so many taboos throughout the course of 20th century stand-up it's unbelievable and these are all things we can freely talk about on the stage today.
0: yeah so what is their beef there. the thing is is that they really want to own a victim disposition they want to believe that their grievances are deep and real and that is the foundation to their their anger Mm -hmm. It's, it's just a fucking grievance driven culture on both sides really Mm-hmm. So, like, you, you know, when the fuck we get past that? I don't know. What a bunch of babies!
1: <laughs> I don't know. And I, I'm really just here to provide the historical examples yes, it, and context. Did I put
0: you in a in a situation? Where no, not I at all. I mean,
1: all you have to do is look a photo of me, and you can tell what my political position is. <laughs> 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 but I'm just here to provide the evidence and contradict the lie. Yeah, that this has never happened before, and that you can't say anything. False, false, false. And uh, what's the new book? Guess what? what? It's about this. The it new is. book is coming out in 2023. Okay. Um, so I got two books out right now. The first one, The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, History of American Comedy, still available, hardcover, paperback, and Are Audible. you ever going to
0: release a, 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 a revised with some of the stuff that you didn't put in the original?
1: You know what I would like to do what? is I have all the transcripts of my interviews with elderly comedians, most uh-huh. of which are people who have since passed away. Oh. And I would like to do like a sick in the head presents and just have all these transcripts with Will, Will Jordan, Jack Carter, Shecky Green. What? Wow. just like unfiltered, giving their yeah. their stories eventually. And then I have a book that's currently in, uh, in print, hardcover and audible called We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, The Unheralded Stories of Native Americans and Comedy. You're- previous guest sterling harjo's featured in that book and reservation dogs is a big component of that it's about representation and racism and marginalization all the things that we're talking about today Mm. and then the new book all this research that i have at my fingertips that i've been posting online the past week is all there because that's what i'm researching right now for my next book abrams press uh should be releasing it in spring 2023
0: great to talk to you cliff you too mark thank you (laughs) That was Cliff. Great guy. Smart guy. The books are great. Always like talking to him. But here here. here, Here we go. There was something that Cliff said toward the end of that talk. That's important throughout history. Censorship comes from two places, the government and corporations. People can protest corporations to encourage censorship. Ultimately, it's the corporation's decision. But a lot of times, corporations and the government have decided to censor or stifle art because of their own self-interests. And I wanted to talk to someone about a very specific case of what's happening. Two extremely popular comedians with a television show being watched by 30 million people who were fired and their careers put on hold because people in power didn't like what they were saying. Yes, in America, there was a, a comedy team That was pushed off by a corporation, broadcasting network, pressured by the government. But look, I I might want to mention someone else I know personally, someone I love, someone I worked with, someone I started with, someone I've known for years who also took a hit from real power, from real power, Janine Garofalo. It's hard to remember, but this is true. It was highly unusual to take the public position after 9-11 that we should not go to war. Janine was one of the most outspoken entertainers against the Iraq war in 2002 and in 2003, and it absolutely hurt her career. I was cast in a pilot for I can't even remember what network. We you know, I got cast. We had scripts. We had plane tickets to go to Vancouver to shoot the pilot. It was me, Odenkirk. Janine was the star. I think Rain Wilson was in it. There was a lot. Beautiful cast. And the day before we were to, to leave for for Vancouver, it got shut down because they thought Janine Garofalo was too controversial. The part had nothing to do with controversy. It was a fairly lighthearted comedy about uh, a production team for a segment on a on a news show. And it got canned. Now, look, Janine didn't stop working, of course, but her career definitely took a hit. And it was because she was out there speaking her mind about a war that many people felt was illegal and immoral. And she was punished for it. That is real stifling of free speech. For speaking her mind as an activist, as a comic, as a performer about what she saw as an immoral and illegal war. And about 45 years before that, there was another very high profile case of comedians using anti-war sentiment, along with a lot of other countercultural comedy and opposition to authority. And, and, and it led to a major television corporation putting the lid on their very popular show. Like, huge And one of the best people to talk about this is David Bianculli. He's the TV critic for NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and he's a professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey. David is also the author of the book Dangerously Funny, the uncensored story of the Smothers Brothers comedy hour. And I talked to him about it last week. We talked to uh, Cliff Nesteroff, the historian, mm-hmm. the comedy historian, show business historian. And, and, you know, he was really kind of going through the history of the idea of cancel, the history of the idea. How many times during the course of history has a comedian said, uh, I can't I can't make fun of anything anymore. Yeah. And, and it's, it's been since the beginning of entertainment time. <laughs> You know, in yeah. relation to the culture, the comic stands alone, and at some point, goes. Everyone's getting too touchy. 1905, 1940, whatever.
2: Yeah. yeah, I'm sure there was a court gesture somewhere in England too. You know, sure, was sure. Yeah.
0: yeah, the sec the, the second one who said they killed the last guy. So <laughs> I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I better not say what the last guy said. They, yeah, the, his head's on a pike out there. <laughs> uh, but that. But see that. The point being, at the end of that. You know, I mean, Cliff was was emphatic about the point that there no one has ever been censored outside of uh, the corporate app environment. No one has ever been you know, st- stopped by on a constitutional level. No one has ever been told they can't talk uh, by anything other than a TV network or a corporate entity that that shuts them down.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's true. And the times when they do it, it sort of is like an ebb and flow. And CBS, after firing the Smothers Brothers in the 60s, brought them back in the late 80s, early 90s, and encouraged them to be bad boys. Yeah, but see, and, that's like, you know, isn't it? And that- they didn't want to, you know. But it,
0: right, but isn't that almost like, you know, bring it's it's almost like, mcmurphy coming back on the ward you know uh <laughs> <laughs> you know if 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 yeah. chief if chief didn't kill him that would have been the smothers brothers in the 80s but you know what i'm saying i mean it's like you know okay well everything's good now that it doesn't matter why don't you two old guys go out there and try to make some uh, hay or something yeah you know? and
2: what and what they did at the time i mean They were Saturday Night Live before Saturday Night Live. Well, yeah, explain that to me. What
0: are we talking, 68? 67 to 69. Okay, so it's 1967, 1969. They take the slot that Bonanza once held correct yes well they were opposite bonanza bonanza major it was the number one show on
2: television every show that everybody threw up against it uh just died and the gary moore show was a variety show that died so badly that cbs had to throw up something right away the only thing it could do that fast was another variety show so they went to the smothers brothers
0: and the smothers brothers at that time were a stage act
2: stage act a comedy duo uh making fun of folk songs and folk singers okay and so very no politics whatsoever just the idea was you know these these earnest if you think of the folk singers of the 60s they were very woke back then sure you know and they would they would they would sing a 3 minute song that was a translation from some indigenous people and they would give a 20 minute story to set up this three minute song well tom smothers and and dickie smothers made fun of all that they could sing and play guitar and bass but they also were
0: comics so they were they were doing a satirical parody of the earnestness of folk singers at the time
2: Yes. And so uh they had this nice little act worked out that was in coffee houses and nightclubs and so they had a good eight, nine minutes of material to open each show already, solid. I mean right. it was perfect. So they got the show. But they had had on CBS a couple of seasons before a really horrible sitcom. They didn't write. They didn't like it. Uh, They took all of the strengths of the Smothers Brothers and eradicated them. And just it was another one of those dumb shows. You know, the 60s were full of of genies and talking horses and Martians. And so in this one, Tommy was an angel who came back to to look over his brother. So not only did they cancel their own show that time it was popular and the Smothers brothers didn't want to keep it going but they didn't want to come back and so Tommy said I'll only come back and do this variety show that you so desperately want from us if you give us creative control and CBS said sure this is going to be 13 weeks what do we care we need something on Did they follow
0: through with that no i mean it was you know they just Well paid- they
2: did for a while more and more I mean at first they were these clean cut young guys in suits singing about folk songs, but after a few weeks, when a new generation came
0: to the Smothers Brothers. We're talking thirty million people are watching this. Yeah. It's Super Bowl numbers now. So so now like you know, and, and the assumption is that the the age range, once it became clear what they were sort of getting at and, and the way that the culture was shifting at that time, was that these were young people.
2: Yeah, and there was no reason for young people to watch television until somebody like the Smothers Brothers came along. And it, they did it in a non-exclusionary way. Like, they would have old showbiz veterans. Like, they had Betty Davis
0: on and Mickey Rooney on the same show as The Who. Well, I think that was interesting. That was a great a great thing about that time was that, you know, the shows that did that, you know, Cavett, even Carson, you, you know, they I mean, show business was show business. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the weird thing about the arc of it all is that, you you know, no matter what t- this particular time frame, you still had all of those people from the studio system still kind of kicking around on television and, you know, in bit parts and movies. So but but it was still it was still that thing that I always liked about show business that you got these young people, you got this new music, you got all this stuff. But it's a big tent, man. And it's show business.
2: And and the tent was open. I liken it to TV news, where there used to be, like, one truth and one solid set of facts, and then there would be three different news networks that would do three different newscasts. Hey, but man. But it was the same basic thing.
0: I talk about that all the time, that, you know, the, the sort of integrity of the cultural bond of America, when there were three networks and PBS... Was was a lot more cohesive, even if it wasn't all the information. We were all kind of on the same page, give or take. Yeah,
2: and and the Smothers Brothers, when they started getting censored by CBS, that was such a new thing that Tommy ran to the New York Times and
0: basically told on them. Well, let's see, like let's let's back up. So the Smothers Brothers put together the show, and you in the book, uh, you basically posit the idea that you know this was. SNL in a way of its time 67 67 through 69 the kind of chances that were being taken the type of sketches that were being done and the talent that was involved specifically in the writer room was was at par with with uh, with the greatest of all time with with Sid Caesar even and with SNL who was in that writer room.
2: Okay. The writer's room, um, it was Mason Williams who went on to do uh, classical gas. It was Rob Reiner was there in the third year. Steve Martin was there. Uh, Thomas Mothers, of course, Bob Einstein and a few other people. And Tommy, you know, the more he pushed, the more he wanted young people involved. So the writers got younger, the performers got younger. He broke so many musical groups. Um, the Who made their American TV debut on The Smothers Brothers,
0: and and the, but they were addressing, you know, the tensions in the country around civil rights and around the Vietnam War.
2: One great censored sketch that CBS pulled entirely was a musical performance to open uh, the fall 68 season with Harry Belafonte. Mm. And he was singing a number of Calypso tunes. They changed the lyrics. It was Don't Stop the Carnival. And it was about the carnival atmosphere, not of Mardi Gras, but of the Democratic National Convention and the police brutality in the protests outside. They filmed Harry Belafonte singing this song with the backdrop of the news and the police, you know, pushing around all the protesters. Oh, wow. And it was a great segment. And CBS cut it entirely and replaced it with a five minute Richard Nixon for president campaign.
0: Wow. And that was and Tommy and didn't know anything about that. until yeah, the night. Not
2: until it happened. And he was so furious. And that was
0: the first that was the first case of it
2: no the first case would the first one was more innocuous with um uh elaine may doing a sketch a sketch about them being movie censors and censoring things but cbs was upset because nobody knew what censors were until then so that sketch was censored and then they started mentioning it on air they sang songs about the censors uh it got bigger and bigger and then uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ, who was the president at the time for the first couple of seasons, he got upset at some of the dumb little things that they did in their sketches, making fun of him. So he calls Bill Paley, the chairman of CBS, and asks them to knock it off.
0: So the president of the United States calls the CEO, the chairman of CBS. Yes. Yes. Uh, corporation. <laughs> and and Paley does Dan Paley does I mean these are like that that's a hell of a phone call it sounds it sounds silly when you say it but well I know yes. I mean no but it's I not silly because like you know look man, I mean we just lived through you know uh we had a wrestling heel for president uh who was a fascist <laughs> for four years who could not stop bitching about you know uh, Saturday night Live or pro football or whatever right but but and there were there were consequences to that as well, but you know in and it, it, in Johnson's time, I mean, this was all done, you know, behind closed doors. Take care of this. So Paley did what? But this has an actual happy ending. First thing that he did uh, was that
2: he says, there's got to be something we can do because we didn't expect this show to be a hit. It's a hit. What can we do to reward Tommy and Dickie and, and still tell them to lay off LBJ for a while? And the producers said they've been wanting to get Pete Seeger on the air. And he's been nationally blacklisted for 17 years, ever since he was listed as a, as a communist in red channels. Right. And so that goes back to McCarthyism and everything else. And, and Bill Paley says, well, I can do that. So have him on. So they have him on. And Pete Seeger, first TV appearance on network television in 17 years, sings a series of anti-war songs uh, through the generations and ending with an original song that he wrote called Ways Deep in the Big Muddy, which basically makes fun of Vietnam and President Johnson. <laughs> yeah. and, and CBS sees this, they tape it, they cut it out. They don't let it on. Tommy's furious, goes back to the times, screams and moans. And then the beginning of 68, Walter Cronkite, the respected news anchor of CBS, goes to Vietnam after the Tet Offensive, comes back, does a special saying, I don't think we can win this war. Best thing we can do is get out with honor. CBS realizes that the tide has turned, allows the Smothers Brothers to bring back Pete Seeger, and he sings waist deep in the Big Muddy. It it gives me chills every time I see it. Such dignity. The man waited 17 years to say what he wanted to say the way he wanted to say it, and he did it. And the postscript, Mark, is that When the Smothers Brothers were about to be fired by CBS, they read on their last show a letter they'd gotten from uh, LBJ after he had decided not to run in 68. Tommy had written him a letter thanking him for that and saying that it was like he'd done it with dignity on the air. And Johnson wrote this letter about how important satire was and comics were and that may leaders never get so big that they can't laugh at themselves and, and have the nation, you know, be comforted by that laughter.
0: Pretty amazing. Sure, but I mean, you know, in but that, that's in light of the fact that behind closed doors, he wanted those guys stifled and, and also in light of the fact that he was leaving so, yes. I mean, it's no. You, <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, how many politicians are you watching today who are who are more brave when they're not going for reelection?
0: No, no. I mean, I get that. But like, ultimately, so this this, this Mother's Brothers is, is a hugely successful show. So mm-hmm. even though like even though Johnson's on his way out, they're still on the air. And, and then, you know, how does it unfold? Because it seems like. In the big picture, if Tommy was left to continue to follow his vision in any real way, he would have been a, a huge producer. It seems like he had a, a tremendous sensibility around this stuff.
2: Yeah, he was, he was a great talent scout and a great producer. And they actually had plans uh, for uh, a new summer series and another spinoff series. And CBS had approved it and approved the fourth season of the Smothers Brothers and then just yanked it all. And it was a breach of contract and tommy
0: sued them and eventually won why'd they yank it though they, i mean like so you know you know we talked about you know maybe three or four specific censorship events but how many were there like what was the environment of the show what was the fight that tommy was was there
2: were more and more each year And if you can imagine, Tommy was like a a rebellious teenager, and CBS was like conservative parents. And the the more rules that the parents set down, the more the rebel wanted to push against them. So they were doing things back and forth. Tommy was sending scripts. Uh, In with the word fuck in them just to fuck with the censors. Yeah. You know, and so they would take those out and leave in some of the other things. The one that finally was the last straw for CBS was the second of two David Steinberg comic sermonettes. Uh David Steinberg's father was a rabbi and he used to be in second city uh David yeah. Steinberg, not his <laughs> rabbi father and and he would have the audience call out names from the bible and he would he would do these uh ad lib little sermons and he did one on Jonah and it got more negative mail than anything had ever gotten in the history of broadcasting. What was uh, the angle uh it was just a very funny it, it, it's so benign, but it's the fact that he was making fun with religion, not of religion. But, uh, you know, there wasn't anything bad about it. I show it to my class these days in college, and, and they just say, what in the world was offensive about that? But uh, they said, can't have Steinberg on anymore, but if you do have him on, he can't do another sermon. Soon as he could, Tom invited David Steinberg back on. And there was no sermon in the script, but David Steinberg was an ad libber. And so when they were taping the show, he said, hey, how'd you like to do another one of those sermons? And they just did one. And CBS freaked, uh, said it was in violation of their contract and pulled them. And they went to trial. And when they finally got to trial in 73, it was in the same federal courthouse at the same time as Daniel Ellsberg was was with his trial for the pentagon papers
0: interesting And they both
2: won they both
0: won so ultimately you know tommy's fight was against censorship and and in in light of what you're saying to me despite lyndon johnson's you, you know uh, problems with them they 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 navigated that through the ceo through paley because he was making too much money on the show And what then became the problem was this constant envelope pushing of Tommy's, either through his own work or through the work of people on the show. Yeah.
2: And I don't see that as a problem.
0: I'm guessing you don't see that as a problem.
2: Isn't that like their job?
0: Well, yeah, of course. Their job is comics, but I assume that they were... You know, uh, you know, losing affiliates because of the grassroots activity. <laughs> you so, assume so, correctly, yes. So then, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, CBS is like, well, this is a problem. But nonetheless, I mean, Tommy never never stopped fighting this fight because he believed in it. And, and then ultimately he won in court, but that was really a breach of contract, uh, uh, right, a uh, problem?
2: Yeah, he won in court, but he really did, they sacrificed their careers for what they believed in. And and I love the Smothers Brothers and what they did, but they never got that career back. They never got that platform. Um, and when you think about it, nobody else has picked it up. In Late Night, yes, with Saturday Night Live, on cable, all over the place. You do Jon Stewart, you do John Oliver, you do, you know, there, there's so many people, Bill Maher, who have done that sort of increasingly political or self-aware comedy but nobody's
0: doing it in prime time on broadcast network television right and the interesting thing like in in really looking at that situation with tommy and the smothers brothers is that they didn't free speech lost yeah yes And, and it lost it lost because of network censorship
2: no i'm i'm sad to say you're you're as a fabler As a guy who writes fables, your morals are really depressing, but they're absolutely accurate.
0: And as you said, you know, whatever the legacy of this is, well, I mean, see, but now there's this false sense, there's this kind of, uh, you know, kind of bloviated. You know, professional wrestling talk radio idea of 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 courage against this uh, this this national uh, uh, plague of of censorship, and it's all bullshit. There's no courage at all. I mean, mm-hmm. the people that have the real courage or ever had the real courage are the people that you know push back on the actual entities that that denied free speech, which were television networks and corporate. Uh, media outlets
2: yeah and and tom smothers and the smothers brothers are all but forgotten today but in those three years they were so important i mean even the comics they had on they had george carlin on when he was just starting to get edgy they had mort saul on um and I, i just really don't think they've gotten enough credit for how much they tried to push the envelope
0: Yeah, and they had – wasn't George Harrison on as well?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, that's one of my favorite stories because, you know, in terms of TV history, 64, the British invasion starts with the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, one of the biggest things. Four years later, the Beatles aren't touring anymore, and they come up with this idea of doing music videos – so that they don't have to go anywhere and to give those to TV. But there's no MTV back then. And they don't give them to everybody. They give them to one TV show per country as an exclusive. And in the U.S., they didn't give it to Ed Sullivan. They gave Hey Jude and Revolution to the Smothers Brothers. And George Harrison came on as a surprise to sort of push it and support them.
0: Oh wow! I remember that video, the "Hey Jude" one. They're all sitting around with a bunch of other people, right? Yeah, and uh, with the tambourines and like just like it looked like a, like a commune.
2: Yeah, it's completely different than what they looked like in 1964 with well, that's their for sure. with their bowing at the same time. Mm-hmm. And CBS would have put up with the Smothers Brothers had the Smothers Brothers not started to lose their audience as they got more vocal and paid more and more exclusive attention to the younger generation. When they did that, they lost, they went from like 30 million viewers down to 20, down to 25, and then they got to a point where their loss was acceptable to CBS. Even though it, they were still doing so well that CBS had renewed them for a fourth hmm. season. So even though you can think of the Smothers Brothers as one of the early examples of literal cancel culture, they weren't canceled, they were fired.
0: Now, I heard that they're going to make this into a film. How far along is that? That seems like something that could educate the peoples.
2: Well, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. I'm a worst-case scenario guy, so until it actually gets moving, I'm not sure. But uh, George Clooney had the rights to it for about 10 years with Smokehouse. Just let that go. Somebody else is just about to pick them up, so it could happen. I just hope that it does happen because it seems like their story is important and is entertaining. Tommy on and off camera was a pretty funny guy.
0: Yeah, I guess it's really hard for people to imagine, you know, the 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 sort of uh, impact of 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 what was happening in the country and and with the with this particular fight. I mean, it's it's full of a uh, it's full of uh, you know big consequences and 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 social um importance. And and it was a very very public and 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 very newsworthy uh, struggle that they were having there.
2: Yeah. And it's the challenge of being a teacher and of being a critic to try to put things into context to make people care about them when, especially the older that it gets and the older that I get.
0: Yeah. You got, you know, you, you really got to hustle. You got to, you know, you really (laughs) got to put it, got to put a shtick together.
2: (laughs) Well, thanks. I love the fact that you're interested enough in this to talk to me and, and you've been doing the good fight for so long that I'm honored to just be here.
0: Well, I appreciate talking to you, David. Thanks for doing it. All right.
2: Thanks so much, Mark.
0: Okay. So that was David Bianculli from Fresh Air, author of Dangerously Funny, the Uncensored Story of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. That happened. And this was for political reasons. Not lifestyle choice, not ethnicity, which are being made into political reasons by a very ambitious, frightening, well-propagandized right-wing movement in this country. The real stifling of comedy is when people in power decide that what the comedian is saying is dangerous and must be stopped. Not because they're like, oh, I'm in trouble. Oh, I did I just say that? I'm in so much trouble. I'm in. I'm being canceled. There's no courage in that playing the victim. The Smothers brothers were courageous. Janine Garofalo was courageous. Courage in comedy is when the comedian takes on those power structures, even when, you know, they can end your career but courage also comes in the form of knowing when the things you're saying can cause harm to people and evolving your comedy past it. Look, I'll, I'll play you a, I'll play you an example. Okay. This is a clip from someone who was on this show. This is a guy who knows about being censored. All right. I just talked to this guy last year. There were boycott threats against this guy for a song he wrote. There was a public rebuke by the president and Vice President of the United States. And there was a pressure campaign against him led by a, a, uh, a cross-section of special interests. So I'll play this for you. This is Ice-T talking about how he had to pull the song Cop Killer off his album. But he also said that this was the lesson he learned from it.
3: Look, I, I, learned, I learned a lesson from that. Um, and I'm, I, on another album, I addressed it. I called it freedom of speech. Watch what you say.
0: That's what I love that fucking record, man. I listen to that a lot. The, uh, the iceberg freedom of speech record, the one with Jello Biafra at the beginning yes. with you. Yeah. And,
3: and, and what that means is we Mark, you got the right to say whatever you want, right? But you have to be prepared for the ramifications. Always. If I come out and I said something that would be considered anti-gay, which I never say, but if I did, I got to be prepared for the gay movement to attack. Yeah. If I come out and say something anti anti Semitic, I have to be prepared to be attacked. So you have the right to say anything, right? But you also got to be prepared for the ram of it. Like you can't go to your wife and say, "Yo, maybe I just fucked your sister." Free speech, you know? Yeah. What I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had to learn that. I had to learn that. What I do say, I have the right to say it, but people also have the right to get angry and pissed.
0: So let's sit with that. I'm not going to play guitar today. Uh, that's our show. I want to remind people to go to podswag.com WTF to get our new merch, the holiday sweatshirt, the new Hawaiian shirt, and the bundle packages of some of our old favorites. That's PodSwag.com slash WTF or go to WTFPod.com and click on the merch tab. Okay? Say whatever you want. You just might have to take the hit.